Nigel Campbell is a lover of all things music. The Trinidad and Tobago native ventured to Toronto, then on to Washington, D.C. in his youth. No matter where he studied and lived, one thing remained consistent, his curiosity about and his love for Caribbean music. Many Caribbean people consider themselves connoisseurs of the region's music. Some are experts with a particular genre. Others may be able to detail songs, albums, and perhaps years that compositions were released. Some may be versed in one particular artist's catalog. Nigel Campbell's knowledge base encompasses slices of all these things, plus more. He is especially detailed in recounting significant events and shifts within the Calypso and Soca genres. What separates Nigel from the casual music observer is his knowledge and understanding of the music business at large. His scope and approach are wide. He understands the bigger picture. He understands where Caribbean music is, where it comes from, and where it ought to be. Nigel Campbell exudes music. These days, the former website developer finds himself as co-host of one of Trinidad's most informative podcasts, publishing a magazine about Caribbean jazz, promoting jazz events, and writing music reviews for Caribbean Beat, the in-flight magazine produced by Caribbean Airlines. Nigel Campbell may not have all the answers to solve the issues within the Caribbean music industry, but he certainly has many of them. If you are interested, involved, or intrigued by Caribbean music on any level, you will be both entertained and informed by the following. This is the story, thus far, of Nigel Campbell. I am Crispin Brooks. And this is Planet 30. He is a music businessman focused on expanding the appeal of island music globally via new media, live performance, and distribution. Mr. Nigel Campbell, welcome to Planet 30. Thank you, Crispin. Thank you very much. And hello from Trinidad and Tobago. Ah, oh boy. I wish I was in the Caribbean right now. Hey, we have, we have a little bit of COVID here, very little. But at the same time, there's something happening here with, in Trinidad and Tobago. We have a little spike in COVID, so it's warm. <laughs> That's all I can tell you. And, and here will not be warm in a while, so yeah. <laughs> Tell me about uh, growing up in Trinidad. What was that experience like? Trinidad is, 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 Trinidad is a kind of space where you can actually get a little bit of everything from everybody, right? Of course, as you're probably aware, all races have come here, all people from lands have come to Trinidad, and they've left a little bit of something. So Trinidad is a little eye-opener versus some of the other islands in the Caribbean. We have a, a wide spectrum of races and colors and mixtures and admixtures. So it was interesting to, to grow up here in Trinidad. Island life is island life. Of course, there's the idea of going out there as it was. So I, I did university in Toronto and then I lived in the States in Washington, D.C. actually for a couple of years, a few years. I was married and my daughter's out there. But um, 
there's something about the islands that still reign supreme in terms of our ability to absorb everything and make it into something brand new. We've been doing that for centuries. We take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and we get into something new. And I think that's what Trinidad is magical. It's a magical place for doing that. Indeed, indeed. What are some of your first memories of music in general? And then your first memories of international music or, or, or the sound that was not indigenous to Trinidad? Well, that's a good question, actually. Well, it, of course, Trinidad is the land of Calypso and things. So certainly I, I was born in the 60s, literally 1960s. So that some of the earliest music I remember hearing was obviously Calypso and a song that stuck, stuck, stuck the a song that stuck in my memory is a song called 67 is the Season by Kitchener. It was a road march in 1967. But I was just impressed with the idea that he was able to, to rhyme those words, 67 is the season. And, of course, I've been lived all through the, the booth and growth of soca music in the 70s and that kind of stuff. But something that stuck with me very early on, there was two songs back in 1979 and about 77. Two musicians in Trinidad were doing some experiments with this kind of thing called crossover fusion and with Kaiso and with jazz. One was Clive Zander, and I think in 1977, 1976, he released an album called Kaiso Kaiso Fusion Innovations. Kaiso Jazz Innovations, I apologize. Where he played original music, but then he did a variation of a, a popular song by Sparrow called Mr. Walker, but he played it almost in a style that sounded almost foreign, and it sounded like something that Dave Brubeck would have played, and when I heard it, I was unaware of Clive Zander, but I, when I heard it, I said, that is the music that Trinidad and Tobago is supposed to make, and of course, discovering that it was a Trinidad who recorded it right there in Trinidad, my focus has always remained on, oh my God, this thing called jazz fusion that exists in Trinidad, Kaiso Jazz, for those who, are, who know it. And that is where I think we could and should go in terms of our music. Yes, of course, as I said, I've been listening to soca music since it was born, and I've heard all the evolution and all the variations by EDM and, and pop and raga and, and dancehall and all these kind of combinations and things. But the kind of fusion exercises, as I said, that happened in, in jazz, which more or less is instrumental music, so it's pure musical forms, is something that's always stayed with me out in all these years that I've been around and things. So that that was the music that stuck with me. Certainly, of course, we heard a lot of international music. The radio, and we had one radio, what, two radio stations in Trinidad back in the 70s, in the early 70s, and one, one um, television station. So as a consequence, hearing that... You heard everything, you heard the world as it was. But the thing that really stood out was, of course, going to see live concerts. And we had a promoter who brought the Commodores and the Jackson 5 and the Jacksons, actually, and and, and George McCree. And it was, those were really interesting and wonderful times. It was like in his mid centers mm-hmm. going onwards. And the Commodores was amazing. I always tell the story. The Commodores and Bob Marley were coming to Trinidad effectively seven days apart. Wow. And I was still at it. It was 1978 or something like that. Uh, and I remember thinking, well, I can't go to both because it's kind of expensive. But Marley from right there in Jamaica, man, he bumped to come back to Trinidad and I went to see the Commodores, right? But Marley never came back to the Caribbean. He never came back to Trinidad, I should say. And as we all know, he passed in 1980 when he got sick. We got his cancer by, by 18, in 1981. He was gone. Fast forward some years, and I'm at the Oval in Trinidad with a good friend, listening to Lionel Richie. 
And Lala Richie says, it's so good to be back in Trinidad. This is my fourth time in Trinidad. Wow. And he then proceeds to perform every single Commodore's hit. And all I'm thinking was, I had an opportunity to see Bob Marley. And I opted out of it to go and see the Commodore's, thinking I'll never be able to see them again. It's just one of those long-winded stories that I just always remember. No, but it's, very, it's, it's, it's very important because it speaks to... A lot of times, how we as you know, as Caribbean people, we sort of push to the side our own. Sometimes, just you know, psychologically, you're like, okay, yeah, yeah, okay, he's one of us. He'll be back. That was um, that is something that I think a lot of Caribbean people do. Unfortunately, we we say, oh yeah, he he's from the region. We'll see him again. Correct. <laughs> so. And that had happened to me. It was one of those things. As I said, it's a big regret of mine. I never was able to see Bob Marley live in my lifetime. And, of course, as I said, in 1980 when he was gone. So, nearly 40 mm-hmm. years now. Mm. Who are some of your favorite uh, Calypsonians? Well, Calypsonians, I mean, the, the, the big three, uh, of course, is Kitch- uh, Sparrow, Kitchener, and Black Stalin. But of course, a second generation came about certainly by the 80s and 90s with David Rudder, with his lyricism, just went to the front of the act. He was the guy who knew how to put words together. He was a clearly a wordsmith. So he, he was really good. But Kitchener had the best music. Harmonies were brilliant. His melodies were also catchy. Sparrow was a combination of both, although there's a kind of con- a little controversy whether or not he wrote all his songs, if he bought his songs. But that said, those are the big three, and those are the ones that stay with you forever and ever and ever. Mm-hmm. You started a website dedicated to Calypso some years ago. What was the inspiration? Uh, we're doing this is when we were in Washington, D.C.? Yes. Okay, that was, I think I remember what you're talking about. Actually, there was, it was a lawyer, he was a client of mine, because one of the things I used to do was I built websites, when websites were a thing happening, certainly in the late 90s into the early 2000s. I kind of got on board because I thought that was the future of communication. And there was a, a lawyer who was a collector of albums, and he had thousands of Calypso records, and he had asked me, to put together um, a, web, a website for him that kind of covered the whole range of what he had and, of course, to have conversations about that thing. I don't know whatever happened to it. As I said, it was not really mine. He was a client of mine. It was kaiso.net was the, um, the website address. Correct. The, the idea of having this kind of database or a catalog of, of Calypso music and possibly soca music also is something that, uh, because, I, as I said, I dabble in, the, in website design and web development, and the whole idea of data becomes so critically important. And that is something that has evaded our music industry, certainly here in Trinidad, in that um, we kind of operate very ad hoc without data. As we all know, the modern music industry is driven by data. So Spotify was a data company, and data is data, data. If you don't know many streams, you don't know the, the analytics of a particular artist, it affects their career as it was. We produce reams of music every carnival we do business without much data and the industry as a whole doesn't necessarily collect data so it's really actually left up to you know individuals you can't you can't always depend on the state to do these for us to actually become data collectors and it's one of those exercises now in this kind of time of my life that i've been pursuing in terms of collecting data on the music industry in terms of output, in terms of reach, and basically data as, as information as data. So simple things like a Wikipedia page of particular artists becomes data 
for for somebody else out there who's interested in getting information. Interesting. And how important do you think data plays a part, even locally, in terms of a lot of companies are now looking at Instagram figures and and Facebook followers. Is that playing a part in the industry today in Trinidad? Well, our industry, of course, is focused hopefully outwards, right? So that we recognize that to get connections and to get gigs, persons outside who understand the idea of a data-driven industry look for those figures and those kind of analytics. In Trinidad, yes, everybody has an Instagram account. They drop stuff in Instagram, blast on WhatsApp. Traditional media is still very popular in Trinidad. So getting an article in your newspapers, getting interviews on radio, terrestrial radio, still has a lot of sway in terms of popularity. The most popular medium together there is radio stations owned by an entrepreneur has a network of three stations covering different genres. And once you get on his stations, you know you're going to be a, almost a star, but you know you've made it. Right, so the idea of of traditional media has not lost its sway. Um, at the same time, understanding your data and understanding where you you fit in the whole scheme of things is clearly important. YouTube has become very important for a number of artists, and of course, we have this new kind of bubbling up genre, subgenre called Zessa, the Zessa movement, uh-huh. which is a kind of that dancehall kind of thing. Right, and some of the acts, Prince Swanee and some others, these are fellows who drop songs. They get very very rough songs, almost like all dance all was, that kind of early militant hip-hop was. But these people are dropping tunes and a million views and a couple of days and that kind of stuff because they have a huge network of fans, both nationally and regionally in, in, as well as in their diaspora. So we on the outside will look and recognize and listen, as much as we're trying to push soca and diversify who's a hit maker and who's not a hit maker at, in, in carnival time, Zessa people are just dropping songs one after the other going straight onto YouTube and pulling up the numbers and getting some kind of critical assessment and, get, and getting obviously some business out in um, out in North America. I remember listening to Prince Swanee. He was there with Trinidad James on Hot 97. Right, States, exactly. Right? Yes. Be there. So that, um, and they, they were able to talk numbers. You have a song and they drop in 5 million. And, I mean, 5 million may not be a lot now, not that we have arrived at the point of billion views. But 5 million views, when you know that a large segment of it is in Trinidad or in the Caribbean, that really is saying something. That really does say something. So understanding the analytics, yes, our artists are interested in that kind of stuff. Um, Some are. Some people don't really take it on because their popularity may lie in live performances. They're a great performer. doesn't make a difference what you are. Once you hit the stage, you're a superstar. COVID-19 has decimated the live music industry. So we'll see that, we'll see if um, the realities of understanding your analytics and your numbers is going to make a difference to some of these artists in Trinidad and Tobago. Mm-hmm. And speaking of the live performances, I mean, COVID definitely has changed things. I, I, I see uh, Anguilla, for example, there is a new entertainment spot, I Was, uh-huh. it's called I Was, uh, done yes. by entrepreneur uh, Mirabel West and what she did the other night was they had a they had a virtual they had virtual DJ sets. So Young Chow from from New York, Hot ninety seven, yeah. he was DJing and they had a giant uh, screen put up, and he was rocking the club in Anguilla. But who is the audience? Anguillans. Anguillans. 
All right. Now, what has happened, as I said in Trinidad, earlier in our conversation, I said we've had a spike in our numbers in terms of positive cases. All the way off flat for a couple of months. We had no new cases for a number of months. More recently, because we eased up some of the things that we allowed some Trinidadians who are brought to come back home and they were supposed to self-quarantine and they may or may not have quarantined properly, the numbers have gone back up. So that we have put back restrictions on live performances, bars, congregations, clubs, and that kind of thing. So that hearing what you're telling me is it's surprising that the DJ may be in New York, but he has a, a live audience in Anguilla. Well, and Anguilla Anguilla's COVID-free. Well, yes, I'm, I recognize that. I've seen that in the Caribbean statistics. There are only about five countries that are COVID-free. Trinidad, unfortunately, is not one of those, one of those countries that yeah. is, is um, COVID-free. No. But as I said, yeah. I think what has, what has happened is um, we we have some some persons have pivoted from the live experience to the virtual experience, obviously. And, um, and, and certainly we've all seen, and I'm confident that all your listeners have also recognized, the Beanie Man and Bounty Killer versus... Um, show that was on Instagram that they had was like massively, massively successful. Yeah, set a new precedent. Yeah, with with half a million views, I'm sure. I, I'm sure at least four hundred thousand came out of the Caribbean itself, right? But um, it was popular. But so we understand that kind of virtual performance. But congregation, unfortunately, is not something that's happening in Trinidad and Tobago. So that kind of concept is kind of is our our live music industry is, is dead. Mm-hmm. No, and so dead. that's what I was saying. I think that. Even when countries begin to reopen fully, mm-hmm. I don't know if we're gonna go back to one hundred percent flying in a DJ to perform. Mm. One, one of the things that we have in Trinidad, we were lucky. Either we dodged the bullet, or we were just the luckiest people on the planet. As they say, God is a trinity. We had carnival, and after our carnival, all the other Caribbean carnivals were effectively cancelled because that's when COVID hit. Our carnival, of course, was in February. And the COVID really hit in the Caribbean in March. But what had happened was we also have, as I mentioned, I'm a concert promoter. I put on this event called Jazz Artists on the Greens. In, it's in March. It's always four weeks after Carnival. So it kind of fluctuates the date. But we had planned to have the show, obviously. Then the government said there were no more, no, no persons could come into the island. And one of our acts was coming from Martinique. So needless to say, that stopped. Then further on, we said, okay, no problem. We'll, we'll wait until July, unaware that this thing was going to be a long, long-term problem. Then, of course, we have now postponed our show until 2021. So we have the same cars happening in 2021. But we're looking at Carnival 2021 in Trinidad, which is going to be in February again, a week before it was in, um, in 2020. We're not even sure anymore. With this new spiking numbers, people are really and truly looking at what is happening. And as I said... The live music industry, whether it's clubs, fets, big shows, like our festival, our jazz festival, we have about 2,000 persons, that's done. Number of artists are looking, of course, into doing the live streaming. Live streaming, as a, as a of course, it exists, as we all know, everybody's seen a live stream performance of somebody. Um, how that is marketed, how that is positioned, also depends on who's willing to pay for production value. Mm-hmm. That has become a major problem, certainly in Trinidad. I don't know about the rest of the Caribbean, but we've had a problem in terms of efficient and effective and easy to use e commerce options for remuneration for either the artists or something that um, audiences will be confident in using. And that is a problem. We do have some workaround options, it's not, it's not a barren land, but the kind of ease at which people have used Venmo and these kind of cash app 
in in America. We we do have those options here in Trinidad. Yeah, there, there, there's certainly options because I I saw a virtual performance from the, a band in Angola, Exodus HD, and I think they had mm-hmm. a it's it's a virtual piggy bank in essence. Yes, and they were able to to collect that because one of their performances actually. It was, um, they had it live in Anguilla, um, mm-hmm. and it, they opened it up for the rest of the world virtually, And mm-hmm. but you had, to, you had to pay. I think it was a $10 entrance or something to, to access, to access the, 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 the show. Yeah. Well, that, that, that model is something that we've seen, if you read the news, BTS had used very, very successfully. The Korean South Korean K-pop group, yes, where they charge about twenty-five US dollars and earn millions of dollars. As I said, we have an option here in China. We call GoFundMe TT, where it's, it's like, almost like a like a, a, a Kickstarter kind of option where you know, people put money in. Yeah, um, and they, they kind of utilize as as a, as a workaround for that to be like a ticket or a piggy bank kind of option. Um, the problem is not problem. Trina, we, there's a local entrepreneur here who has a radio station, Kenny Phillips. His son is the producer, Casey Phillips. And he has his radio station, WAC Radio, has been utilizing a streaming model. He has, his, he has his, his almost flawless. And he's been building an audience for Calypso music, which is not as popular as soca music, the kind of original Calypso music, and performances. But what he's also discovered and he's also shared with us, certain our podcast, is that he has a very large diaspora audience. Diaspora persons, persons who live in the States, even with their Caribbeans, understand the ease at which they can use a, a credit card to pay for things online. We use things online. We buy things online in Trinidad. Obviously, Amazon is, is here almost, right? But the numbers cut down when it's not Amazon, when it's something different. Okay, it's an artist who wants to have a show. Let me pay to use it. All of a sudden, questions become, well, how do I know that my card is safe? These are the kind of questions that are asked. Although you may go through a ticket outlet, a, a system that takes money for tickets, some of these systems don't operate in Trinidad and Tobago. It's one of those unfortunate things about being in Trinidad and Tobago right now. There are problems beyond simply desire of wanting to see a show, wanting that kind of stuff. That is kind of out of our hands. So, you know, I, I saw a quote from someone, I uh, can't remember where, but they said that particularly for people of the African diaspora, black people, that food and music are two of our love languages. Caribbean people as a whole, definitely no different no matter the race, um, we love music. However, we don't like to pay for music. Where do you think that, that attitude so comes from? Where does that attitude come from? Well, as I said, we have seen horror stories. We in the Caribbean, black people in the Caribbean, have seen because television, radio, films, books, newspapers, whatever, have seen what the black man in America had to go through, right? In the 60s and beyond, right? So Jim Crow laws existed in the South in the 50s, up to the 60s when Martin Luther King was still alive. Simple things like voting was a problem. Going to school was a problem. Getting married was a problem. Mm-hmm. There were laws and the books that prevented a black man from marrying a white woman in states, in a number of states. Of course, we all know about in the 50s it stopped, but going to school was still a problem. Yeah. And there was only, so we have seen those things and we are wary of that because we've come from a country, from countries that were colonial, but then ultimately by the 60s started to have black political leaders. Right. And that kind of stuff. So prime ministers became well, black men, or red skinned men, if you want to be very specific. But they were not necessarily Englishmen, white Englishmen, 
or white Americans, let's call it, if you want to use that for some certain places. So we've seen that and we don't understand that deep within our DNA, what has happened to other persons. But we also recognize that it's not going to happen to us. So there's a kind of caution in terms of doing a number of things. One of the big issues, as I said, is the idea of spending money online. It's not necessarily, it's not brand new. We all know how to spend money online. But money is one of those things that we want to hold on to. And we don't trust systems that are not settled. That spending spending money with a credit card when it first started, for online, even for, for Amazon or something like that, was still a, a very hesitant action by Trinidadians. Now, of course, with COVID and, and certainly for the last couple of years, all the bills that bill paying and all these kind of documents, buying a ticket to travel and that kind of stuff, are all done online and can be done online. Those who do, do it. But a number of persons still view the value of buying music or buying a ticket online as a very difficult thing to do. They will find you to collect to pay for tickets. For our show, we do online ticketing. There's a local entrepreneur who's put together a ticketing system to where you can buy your tickets online. But a number of persons, and he has it within a kind of, we have this thing called a lottery system, national lottery, that have machines all over. So you could just go to a machine and buy a ticket. Yet still there are people who insist upon coming to you physically because they don't want to swipe their card on something they're unsure about. As I said, I think it's more out of caution that we operate the way that we do. Unfortunately, it travels over into areas where it says that I'm not going to pay for a ticket or not going to pay for music online. Online. But I find even even before the online thing, you know, people were hesitant to buy CDs, and even when it was when it was a tangible, when it, when the music came in tangible form, um, people were eh, not sure. Maybe tomorrow. I, I think one one of the things about that is well, there's also the, the cost. When you CDs were imported, yes, yes, we had local production of CDs after a while, but generally, if you ordered a CD by Michael Jackson, it was imported. And all of a sudden, the cost of a CD was 10 times the cost of what you saw for a blank CD, right? So piracy became a real thing in the Caribbean. I mean, we were, we were notorious in the Caribbean for pirating music, right? And I mean, in terms of globally and IFPI and, and the U.S. Trade Department, everybody recognized that piracy was a problem in the Caribbean. And whereas a pirated video or a pirated CD would cost ten trillion dollars the original CD will cost a hundred trillion dollars, right? Mm-hmm. It was about fifteen US dollars. So you could imagine one fifth, something that is ten times the cost, puts a kind of halt on how people spend their money. So paying for things becomes a problem, a kind of problematic for us because, as I said, we we we, we, we ration how we spend money for entertainment. We spend money to go to a fet. We may not spend money to buy a record. Only the record is a tangible thing that we can have and listen to all the time. We not we may not be even spending money to subscribe to streaming services, which of course is a new paradigm. And um, it, it becomes slightly problematic in terms of the business of music in the Caribbean, right? So that labels don't see us because they, they look as well, what's the business of, let's say, soca music? They're not seeing a business of soca music. They're not seeing the numbers. That, and that is reflective of an audience that is hesitant to spend money when they can generally get some things for free, generally pirate them. So there's some bad attitudes that we've had in the past. There's some examples that don't look pretty, and these have affected how we have done business and how it affects our Caribbean business 
as seen by the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. So all in all, do you think that Calypso is dying a slow death? Calypso music is still has its fans. Calypso music to me is now like traditional blues. That those music will never die, but they become niche music, right? Soca music, of course, is a new drive. It's a new music that drives Caribbean music festivals, Caribbean festivals, Caribbean carnivals, and whether they're in Toronto, London, New York, or Trinidad, or Barbados, right? Soca music is what drives it. So, Calypso music, with its brilliant lyricism and, and its witty lyrics and that kind of stuff, has kind of died a slow death. So, it's died a death as a performance aesthetic, even in Trinidad, because our Calypso tents are not pulling in the numbers that existed before. But we have a we have an event called the March Grass on Carnival Sunday night where they have the finals of the Calypso Monarch, and people will watch the live stream or go to the actual event at the Savannah, and it's very popular. And they'll hear the Calypso once, they'll love it, they'll comment on it, they say this is a good Calypso, this is a bad Calypso, whatever the deal is, and that's it, and they forget about it. It's like a newspaper, literally. So you don't read a newspaper over and over again unless you're getting some research or something like that. That's what a calypso is. You hear it once, that's it. You don't want to hear it a second time. Whereas you could go to a fet and hear soca music a hundred times until they get fed up effectively. It has, it's died a slow death, but I, think, I don't think die is the correct word. I would suggest that it's now moved into a niche market where the value can be added to that as a kind of a unique music, just like blues, just like classical music, just like Zydeco and that kind of stuff. Hmm. The rise of uh, soca music in the past 15 years specifically has been incredible. Can you comment a little bit about what may have changed to thrust soca really to the forefront? Because, I mean, it existed obviously since the late 70s, early 80s. But in the last 15 years, it has gotten organized and and, and, uh, it has a broader commercial appeal. And our soca artists are turning into genuine pop stars. I, I think um, what has happened is a couple of things have happened. You, you, you kind of bracketed it in, in 15 years. But I think even before 15 years ago, there was a, a superstar, super blue, to me, and the Soka Monarch competition in Trinidad, certainly. Mm-hmm. But Soka, to me, Super Blue is one of the most magnificent performers ever. He wrote great songs, more rude matches than anybody else. Get Something and Wave is one of those iconic songs that transformed the nation. A, a year after we had a, a coup, an attempted coup in Trinidad in 1990. He sang that song in 1991. And he was riding a wave. He personal, you know, personal misadventures. He got into some bad habits as it was. His career kind of stalled. That was the rise of Marshall Montano. Marshall Montano certainly looked at soca music the way that dancehall artists were looking at dancehall in terms of the way the music industry is operating and looking at Caribbean music or even African music. And he positioned himself and he positioned with himself within a business model that says, this is how the music is supposed to go. Coupled with that, because Marshall, as I know, started when he was 10 years old. So Marshall in, in the 1990s, in the early 2000s, was still a young guy, mm-hmm. right? Coupled with that, audiences for soca music, as I said, because there's so much tied with Carnival. Carnival evolved to a thing that became what we call in Trinidad, bikinis, beads, and feathers. That focuses on women. A lot of young women put on these bikinis and they parade in the road. And the audience for carnival music, as I like to call it, became younger and younger because everybody says, well, I was a rite of passage. I have to play mass before I turn 30. So a lot of young people 
were getting into the whole carnival business as it was. And carnival itself, the whole carnival industry, certainly in Trinidad, recognized this. We started to expand and export the carnivals and carnival fets. The fet aesthetic kind of rose to the top more so than shows and that kind of stuff. So that soca music at that during that period of time, within the last 15 years, as you said it, had a kind of ascension that it actually got the attention of persons like um, Major Lazer and well, Bustleton Point Dexter, maybe before that. Yeah, Donovan, um, hot, hot, hot. But the Bahamian, let's say, what Donovan, um, who let the dogs, dogs out. out right. Yeah. Well, as I said, what had happened, certainly in Trinidad, we had seen a younger audience. That younger audience was projecting it. Social media hadn't been as so big as yet. But certainly, with social media, of course, now everybody can see young people having fun, looking good, hearing the music, and then they say, oh, listen, this thing looks like fun. And then that whole idea of being part of that milieu where carnival music and soca music is driving this kind of party atmosphere, this festivity, people want to be part of that. Whether whether they're having carnival in October or they're having carnival in February, wherever they are and the carnival exists, that happened. Of course, the kind of modern innovations in terms of the music industry we see, we don't have to make CDs anymore. In 2000, people were making CDs. By 2010, you, you better be selling your stuff on iTunes, right? In 2020, we want to make sure that you're on Spotify and you're streaming, right? So that even though, and, and there's a kind of a, a little aside here, soca music, you and I call it soca music, but on Spotify, it's, it's classified as reggae music. And yes. Afro music is classified as reggae music. Which That's is annoying. Probably a, probably a whole other conversation by itself in terms of why artists are insisting or not demanding that they classify their soca music. It's one of those things that happens. But um, as I said, I think within the last 15 years, certainly social media, the, the, the lowering of the age of the audience, and, and they're the ones who drive music. Whether it was rock and roll back in the 50s, young people drove that music. Now soca music is young people who are driving the music. And they're getting young and they're liking it. Brilliant, brilliant. Can it get bigger than it is now, you think? Um, well, as you know, as I said, we mentioned Marshall Montano. Marshall Montano got married in 2020 and he said this is going to be last Marshall Monday. We don't know how long he's going to be around until he's a big man. He's in his 40s now. He has gray beard and all that kind of stuff. Some of these our top soccer artists are now in their 40s, right? So we now have to look for a younger generation of artists to come up for developing brand new music and great music as it was. Some of the artists, personally, as a, as a, a reviewer, I do some reviews for Caribbean Beat Magazine. Some of the younger artists are the kind of middling. But the writers, the songwriters and the producers are young. And I swear that I have confidence that they can get the thing done. I also have confidence because of this way that social media operates, that somebody is going to link up with somebody. Because as far as I've been seeing, in terms of Caribbean music, there's always somebody else that likes your music out there. To, to take it to the world as it was. I always posit that Chris Blackwell and Bob Marley in tandem made reggae a global phenomenon. But Chris Blackwell is out there. Um, I don't know if you saw the story with Shaggy and, and the song, um, It Wasn't Me. Yes, I, I did. Said it was a, a DJ in Hawaii. In Hawaii. And he blew it up and that kind of stuff. And all he was signed to a label already. They were ready to drop him. So there's always this one character, this one kind of thing that exists out there that is going to help you take the music further. As I said, I'm confident that there's somebody still out there that we do, we, haven't, we don't know who it is as yet who's going to hear Soka, 
is going to hear this whole notion of festival music and the whole fest aesthetic and the carnival concept. I said, yes, I want to be part of this and make it an endless summer. Because so you could have summer in, in, in February. <laughs> they want a boat and let them cruise through the Caribbean. And, I mean, these are the kind of things that are going to happen. Soka can't get bigger, but I think there has to be some, obviously, some kind of development of the industry, certainly in Trinidad and Tobago. And it, it's a matter of branding. It's a matter of spending money for marketing. It's a matter of getting out there and doing the kind of right business collaborations. These are, these are kind of new steps. There exist one or two persons have, do it, have done it a lot more people have to start doing it to get on board. The way that Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico is just dropping billion view songs and everybody who's into reggaeton and Puerto Rican, they, they got it. They plus had a kind of built-in market. There's a very large and loyal diaspora. Very so large and loyal Latin market, yes. Yeah, right? So that um, we have to develop our diaspora markets and engage with them. There's a new generation of diaspora Trinidadians who've gone out to the Americas who are actually waving the flags of their countries. Those who had left in the 70s and went to America in the 70s and the 60s, they became almost like Americans. They were hidden. They didn't come out in full view. They'll come back to Trinidad. They'll support Trinidad runners and the Olympics and footballers and that kind of stuff. But they were kind of quiet. This modern generation of Trinidad diaspora young persons, they're bold. They're claiming their Caribbeanness, And I know one, and I think his name is Crispin Brooks. And look what he's doing right now. <laughs> Caribbean diaspora is happening now. It's happening now. So that is what we look for in terms of taking our music further. Indeed, indeed. What, in your in your opinion, what are mm. soca artists getting correct, and what are they getting wrong? What are they getting correct? Um, well, this may be some this may sound controversial. As I said, one of the things that we in Trinidad know the songs, we like the songs, we hear them, we react to the songs. But an American, let's say, or a European may hear it completely differently from us, right? And one of the things that I think artists have to understand is a hit in Trinidad may not be a hit in France or, in, or a hit in Miami. So some artists get that. Other artists don't, right? So positioning yourself, you, you, of course, you, in terms of your look, your marketing, your, your whole brand strategy and that kind of stuff, Everybody, we talk about wanting to get out there, but we still focus on making it in Trinidad and Tobago. And once you make it in Trinidad, then you can make it on the Caribbean diaspora circuit, the Soka circuit as it was, going up to Miami Carnival in, in October. But um, we have to see the world as a little bigger than the Caribbean diaspora circuit and thing. It may be expensive, it may be difficult to get an in, in, a foot in to certain spaces. In terms of what artists are getting wrong, I think there's this lack of recognition of how big the world is. We still focus a little too much on what happens in, in America. Mm. What they're getting right, they're understanding the ideas of brand and brand definition. They're understanding that it's a business and it's no, and not, you don't give your music away and certainly don't give away your publishing rights and that kind of stuff. These are things that artists in the centers, you know, they made a record and never, never even bothered to look backwards so they never realized that the masters were theirs and people would just come and give them a couple of dollars and next thing you know, a label in Germany or a label in Japan has your masters and doing reprints. I think modern artists are understanding it. And if they don't understand it themselves, they're able to link with persons who do, effectively and otherwise. And I think, so as I said, the, young, the new artists are understanding that. But they're still not seeing that the world is much bigger than the Caribbean circuit. 
I mean, you can get that very, very clear, very, very early, or else you'll kind of get left behind. Mm-hmm. This next question, I'm pretty sure um, people from the Leeward and Virgin Islands listening mm. <laughs> would want, would really want me to ask this question. Mm. Would the, Will the Trinidad market ever accept music from the smaller islands? Now, you know, you say that as if that is a thing. Um, something I did not mention, myself and Laura Doris Phillip, who's the regional lifestyle editor for Loop Caribbean, we do a podcast, Music Matters, the Caribbean edition. And our very first two podcasts were on soca music. Because what soca music is, is no longer Trinidad music. Soca is now Caribbean music. Some of the top producers and his top writers are from St. Lucia, St. Vincent, Grenada. Soca music is now flavored. We have our city from the Virgin Islands who are now doing collabs with Bungie Garland and singing songs with Casey Phillips Productions. That song like Soca. We understand music from the small islands. What has happened, and it's no fault of ours, but maybe a fault of theirs, and I'm, I'm sure they're going to pet big stones at me for saying this. You have to come to Trinidad. And you have to get in with somebody here. Just like if a Caribbean person has to go to America to make it, they have to link with an American publicist or something like that. There's a kind of similar thing that has to happen. We, we don't reject the music. As I said, we have not rejected Grenadian music. Grenadian soca is what Jab, Delery Segmer from St. Lucia, Bouillon from Dominica. We don't reject those music. The, the road march this year was a Bouillon song, effectively, with Skinny Fabulous, Bungie, and Marshall family, right? Produced by Dada. So that we in Trinidad certainly don't reject. I, I'm not going to accept this thing about we don't we don't accept small island music. But there's some music that we are un, unfamiliar with. Admittedly, what goes on in Anguilla, what goes on in Saint Martin, we're we kind of unsure we, because we're so far south. We don't see or hear what goes on. Barbados at one time was dominating our soccer industry. The Bajan and Virgin is a big thing. But as I said, the Northern Caribbean is almost alien to us. And it's not like an, it's, an, it's not impossible for us to get there. Caribbean Airlines flies directly to St. Martin. We fly directly to Antigua. So it's not an impossibility to get to the upper islands and you know, check out the space out there. But, um, and as I could tell you, the far fact, Destra Garcia, she plays all the islands of the Caribbean, Bungie, Marshall. So I was, so was going to push back on, on that a little bit because you said that you, you, have, to, you have to come to Trinidad, right? Um, however... There are artists in Trinidad who have huge songs in the Leeward and Virgin Islands that they, they've never been. Matter of fact, the song reaches, it gets big, and then they're invited inevitably by a promoter. Yeah. You know? I, I come. And, and um, the next thing I was going to push back on again is that you're saying that, you know, people don't know about the, the Northern Islands. However... Trinidad. Trinidadians, but the Trinidadian artists are there every year. They're invited up, and they, so my thing is that there seems to not be. And I'm, I'm, I'm reflecting. I'm saying this because of conversations with artists as well. There seems yeah. to be. There's not really a symbiotic relationship. There's, there's a, there's a lot of give on the Leeward and Virgin Islands behalf, but not a lot mm-hmm. of take. <laughs> well, understand something, eh? What like like both markets. It's not that we, we, we are against hearing music from the upper, from the Northern Islands or from, as you say, the small islands. We have to be good. You have to be able to catch us. There's this concept I've always spoken about, about how audiences, we know good and we know bad on hearing, right? It may not be popular, 
but we know good we know the difference between good and bad right and good is a, is a kind of relative term almost what is good to you in angola may not be good to me in trinidad but mm. that said to drive an audience if we hear a song and say what is this song it's from a band from san martin oh my god we love it it could be a hit in trinidad now do we book them and bring them to trinidad i know i can tell you for a fact dominica is one of those markets Booyah, as I said, was a road march in Trinidad. Biggest, what biggest song was? It was a Booyah song. But Dominica Carnival and Trinidad Carnival fall on the same days. And Dominican artist, Isa Banton, is the biggest artist out of Dominica. He would love to come to Trinidad, but he's not. He's not going to leave Dominica to come to Trinidad to do some fetching. If, if I'm not mistaken, he's actually he actually lives in Saint Martin. <laughs> That's what I look at that, right? So, so that. Um, the, the, so it becomes a kind of difficult concept for some some of the islands, to, some of the artists, I should say, to come. In terms of us not bringing like Virgin Island artists and that kind of stuff, admittedly, some of the songs we don't know, some of our local DJs, chauvinistically or otherwise, are picking up songs that we know, right? But we, we, we will, and producers, as I said, are working in Trinidad. Motto, who's the, kind of the king of the Henry segment, he's in Trinidad. He does collaborations with Trinidad artists. He produces songs. Of course, he wants to produce with Bon, bon Jan Marshall. But I think possibly this is just a, a suggestion, and, and don't it's not it's not golden. Producers and you, producers and you are the stars of the soca industry nowadays. The, the artists themselves are almost like band singers, right? But mm. the producers are the ones who drive the music. So if a, a producer from Anguilla or from the Virgin Islands is producing hot music. And he's able to produce a Trinidadian with a hit. All of a sudden, we'll be looking to the Virgin Islands. It's not the artist per se; it's the producer. So that you said that the people in Virgin Islands will invite an artist for, from Trinidad or wherever from Trinidad to come to the to the islands and perform. I, I disregard. She's a good friend of mine, and she's told me that she's performed in Anguilla and some other places. Oh, she's performed everywhere. <laughs> Yes, and she's. I, I wrote an article in Caribbean Beat about her being effectively the number one female soca artist in the world, and she has never won a road match, and she's never won a soca monarch. Right. But it, she, she has the biggest digital. She has the biggest um, social media platforms in terms of an artist. Yeah, her footprint is huge because she has. Yeah. Again, she has fans in like every single country. Every single market, and she and she services the market. She goes to all the markets, and then she does the kind of thing that she broke her ankle in Bermuda. And she continued to perform in the rest of the, the, the other um, other venues that she had to perform in throughout, throughout the Caribbean and North America with a broken ankle. Hardest working woman <laughs> in Soka, they say, right? <laughs> yeah, she really does her work. She does her work, right? In Trinidad, we like Destra, we know Destra, but she's not she's not the number one female artist in Trinidad at present, unfortunately. I think at to our peril. But I'm a little older than you are and a number of a number of the audiences, so I kind of hold on to Destra. But I recognize that she's not as popular. But as I said, in terms of the kind of controversy of the idea that Caribbean musicians outside of Trinidad are not being brought to Trinidad to perform, I think the artists may or may not be great. I don't know. I, as I said, I know few. I know few artists out there. But I think the producers are the ones who have to develop some songs and try and get that kind of working relationship with soca artists and Trinidad. Well, in, in in all fairness, I think there's also a difference in sound. There's a difference in cadence. There's a difference in tone um, that, especially in, you know, Sinkits has a, a, they are very, you know, Sinkits has their own distinct sound. Uh, Anguilla, St. Martin, Virgin Islands, slight difference, but same category, you know. So Sinkits and Nevis would have their own thing going on. I think uh, Sabre, Stacia, which are 
even smaller, have their own yeah. combination of the Kitishan and the VI Anguilla uh, type sound. And so I think that that may be a factor as well. Um, there's some songs that are designed to sound Trinidadian, and then others yeah. are just like, you know, indigenous. Well, as I said, Buya and, and Denary segment were completely different from anything that we did in Trinidad. And for the last three, four years, that is what is driving a lot of the music. Carnival now on the road has moved away from this kind of groovy soaker that Trinidad has kind of innovated, admittedly, kind of borrowing some pop and that kind of stuff. And we've now moved headlong into Jab Jab Rhythm, Buya and Denary because they have a kind of what I call an African DNA. The drum is what leads that music. And if you, you, you feel that, you hear that rhythm, and you don't care, it's the kind of music that we're going to match up the place. I have reviewed a, a song from St. Martin. Don't ask me the name of the performer. No, it escapes me now. And it was a song that was about this, uh, what happened during an electric blackout or something like that in St. Martin. And um, Gibi, Giba, 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 I think it's the, it's the government electrical co- uh, company. GB, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. And uh, and the song has it's, it's completely different from where I was interested in it because I like the lyric one, and I wanted to to to, to put into context the different my trend and mine, what the song represented to the Trinidad audiences and to a larger Caribbean audience. And I heard the music and it had a different tempo, very fast rhythm and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, this is different. The video was unique and that kind of stuff. And I remember playing it for another Trinidad. He said, oh, this is just like um. Jab Jab Rhythm. I said, no, it's not Jab Jab. It's, it's some, something completely different, right? And a lot of a lot of our listeners in Trinidad, or I'm not saying that producers or promoters, we, we hear something, we like it, or we do like it, right? There's still taste makers who kind of do a lot of decision making, promoters, radio station players, and that kind of stuff. That happens, I guess, in, in music industries all over the world. They have to have gatekeepers that bring in some and don't bring in others. So that um, a lot of music in America, nobody likes hip hop. At first, hip hop is not the dominant music in, in America. One of the biggest hip hop artists in America is a Canadian, <laughs> right? <Andrew>. Drake, <laughs> right? So that, as I said, the tastemakers are there, but I think the role of the music producer is, to me, in my estimation, more prominent than the role of the actual person singing the song, right? So that that is going to what makes that is what's going to make the difference in terms of how we interact with music coming out of Anguilla, VI, St. Kitts, Nevis, Antigua. Antigua, many years ago, back in the seventies, we allowed anybody to have a, a road march, but generally it was always a trend. I didn't win any road march, and a particular year, swall, um, short shoot from Antigua, Tourist Lego, and a song called Tourist Lego <laughs> that was ripping up the, the songs. And Kitchener, whether it's xenophobic or otherwise, said, "Hey." Road match could only be won by Trinidadian. And it was written to the rules that only a Trinidadian could win. Fast forward a number of years, and Shaggy and Marshall have a song called Toro Toro. And it was ripping up and it was possibly going to win. And then they said, well, no, 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 Shaggy's not a Trinidadian. So they said, well, it's 50 50. So then they came with a new rule. It has to be sung by, in majority, by a Trinidadian. So come to 2020, and guess what we have? And then you, have, have, you have family with two Trinidadians and a Dominican. Who wrote the song? It's a Vincent who wrote the song. It was, it was um, Skinny and, Fabulous' song. And produced, by, Dominic- and produced by Dominican. Produced by Dominican, right? So there you go. So, so I think the workarounds where the bottom line has always been work with somebody. Um, Dada, who produced the song, he worked with, with Bungie and Marshall and he worked with Skinny Fabulous, obviously. And Marshall, to his credit, has been reaching out to as many Caribbean musicians, as many Caribbean voices and producers to, to kind of 
because he understands that soca music is Caribbean music. And to his credit, his last album, GOAT Goat, has, has touched on that idea. It's had a way, wide range of producers and collaborators on that record. And I think that is not everybody can afford that, and not everybody is doing that. But the producers are the ones, as I said, who can make that difference. Mm-hmm. Long answer. I apologize. <laughs> no, 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 of course. This is, I think this is one of the most, most important discussions that I've had about Soka uh, that has been yeah. recorded. <laughs> okay, well, I hope, you, I hope your fans like it. I'm and sure, they get a lot of feedback and comments. I'm sure they will. What do you count? Um, so we're going into the idea of Soka and its expansion, right? What do you attribute to the success of, for example, Afrobeats versus Soka in the last couple of years? I think that is a number game. We say success of Afrobeats, but that success has to be counted by somebody, and that somebody is counting it a platform like YouTube and, and Instagram and that kind of stuff. And these are, it's, as I said, it's a numbers game nowadays. Afrobeats, with some of the, the African artists, as it was, they have the numbers. So an, an artist from Nigeria or from Kenya or Cameroon or wherever, they drop a song and 10 million people will jump on because they have large populations. Mm. We have small populations. As I said earlier in our conversation, Zessa is very hot. But this is controversial because they're talking about guns and violence and that kind of stuff. So certainly it's not going to get radio, airplane, Trinidad. And it's kind of looked down upon by certain tastemakers and, and persons who hold gatekeeping positions within the cultural industry in Trinidad and Tobago. But markets have picked up on the Zessa movement and are interested in it. Soka, on the other hand, as I said, has always been carnival music. So after carnival has happened in Trinidad and Tobago, a Soka song in Trinidad and Tobago is not a hit in July. It may be popular in, in North America. Cumulatively, it may, the numbers don't rise to the kind of 15, 10, 15 million views that you need to even be taken seriously. So as I said, I think because it's a numbers game, we, we are at a disadvantage and we don't have the kind of loyal Latin market that the Puerto Ricans, so when Daddy Yankee puts out a song, he has about 3 billion view songs. And of course, the number one song on, on um, YouTube ever is Despacito. Yes. <laughs> so you understand what we're dealing with that is of that to, to get to 5 billion views it's a lot a lot a lot of people when Sai had crossed a billion was the first person to crack a billion yeah, views Gangnam Style Gangnam Style when he first did that there was a large Korean market who said we're going to make this a billion seller because the numbers were going up and people said we're going for it and they, they religiously just kept playing it and reviewing it and reviewing it and that kind of stuff that kind of attitude also okay we like this soca song a very popular song in Carnival in Tobago they say was Savannah Grass by Kess the Band. And um, it's, it's popular with all age groups, young people, old people, whatever the deal is, right? And there was an attempt at one point to let people just play the song over and over and over again to drive up the numbers. We get kind of lazy, right? Um, and, and a parallel kind of situation that happened some years ago, we had a Trinidadian girl, Anya Ayongchi, who went up on his television who called Project Runway. Right. And there was a segment where the people had to vote. And the vote was open to anybody anywhere in the world on, on Facebook or something like that, on some platform. And Trinidadians got an algorithm that allowed them to, to just religiously revote every 30 seconds. Right, and so at one point she was like, she was third, and overnight she was number one by a mile and a half because Trinidadians got behind her and said, "Be voting for her." See, I, I think the same for Tessa, no? 
I was not going to say that. I was not going to say that. I think that similar thing happened to Tess and Jen, right? So that we will get behind you if we have to get there, if we see that you can make an impact in a market that we all want to achieve. We want to make it in the American music industry. See, if this is a girl on an American television show and she could get something in her, on the American fashion scene, yeah, we're back in here. And you admitted she never knew how to sew a dress. Yes. How to sew. The girl who taught her to sew is now making waves because she did. She was one of the persons who helped dress Beyonce for her Black is King video. Wow. Deal with that. So that the idea of Trinidad is out there making it. We would back you. We are very, very religious. But it's, there's some things that we ain't going to work. We ain't working too hard to do. Yeah. And we don't have the numbers. So we have to kind of repeat ourselves to get those kind of numbers. Whereas 10 million Africans will, will vote once. Bam. Mm-hmm. We don't have 10 million Trinidadians or Caribbean people to do that. So, so are you saying that fans can probably dedicate themselves more to pushing particular songs to help the well, entire genre? Well, that, that is a culture that exists. I was reading somewhere that in Japan, fans are so loyal, they buy hundreds of copies of one, of one record just to drive up the numbers because there's also this kind of cultural thing that when you're that loyal, the whole notion of fandom versus you, that the fan becomes the, the focus of the artist that you get benefits and you know prizes and that kind of stuff if you buy 100 copies of my record I'll give you a private song or some kind of thing so that kind of culture as I said similar to the fact that we we don't spend as much or as not really rephrases we don't spend as widely as on, on entertainment and culture as other people do we recognize and we like entertainment and, and culture, but we'll also be watching our dollars. Exactly. They buy food. <laughs> but we we have to buy a record, we're gonna have to be, we may not spend a thousand let me rephrase. In Trinidad Tobago you can go to FETs that cost one thousand Trinidad dollars, like about let me say almost two hundred US dollars. Right? People will pay money and go to those FETs if they know they're gonna be entertained because there's free food and free drink and champagne and all that kind of stuff. Not everybody's willing to do that. Not everybody could afford to do that. But I think generally people have been looking at it and said, but I could go and see those same artists at another fet that's costing 30, 40 US dollars. Right? So people recognize there's a value proposition at, at, at Bay here. And we look at these kind of things and, and that also rules over to how much we're willing to do our job in terms of promoting and pushing up those numbers in terms of YouTube views or in terms of followers and that kind of stuff. It's, I'm sorry, we have, we have work to do, but this, this brand new music industry, which obviously the rest of the world has understood and has taken full hard with, we're still operating in a sphere where we only release one major song a year. That is a carnival time and after carnival, soca artists go out and do the live circuit, but they don't give us new music. Mm, that's mm-hmm. so we operate in this kind of very segmented market in a very seasonal time and we don't see new music driving us to continue our fandom throughout the year hmm. now big question how can caribbean how can caribbean governments help the genre or the carnival culture in general but boy now you're talking my language because i write on that and this is one of the things that I've been known to talk about because we have our states, our Caribbean states, utilize tourism as a magnet for their GDPs and economies. A lot of Caribbean states. Trinidad is a little different because Trinidad is lucky to have oil and natural gas. 
so that the tourism aspect of our culture, our, our region, our island, sorry, is not the same as in St. Lucia or Barbados or the Bahamas, right? So part and parcel of the, the government's role in terms of funding industries, we have been trying to diversify our economy because the oil and the, uh, the natural gas in the ground will end soon, right? So probably a generation from now, probably my children, when the, my children's children, if they ever came to Trinidad, will not be seeing oil and gas running the country. So something else has to happen. And we all, and we all seem to need to try to jump onto that new industry too late. What is happening is that the state has been spending money to help diversify the economy. But in Trinidad, to be specifically, our state has allocated one of the ministries, the Ministry of Trade, actually, to look after the film, fashion, and music industry. But the biggest issue has happened is that the, 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 as a cabinet or as a government, yes, they recognize it as a potential for spending money for marketing, for developing the infrastructure, developing the enabling environment for the industry to grow. But they're not spending enough money. Right? They're spending, we still spend a lot of money on the oil and energy in the energy industry. We're looking at manufacturing, we're looking at financial services. This is trying as an example. So that governments do have a role in terms of building music industries. Music industries, however, unfortunately, sit in Trinidad, and I'm not sure if it happens in the other islands. The way this kind of structure that we see that exists in the European music industries, in Sweden, in England, in France, the way they have they have guilds and they have associations and they have properly functioning corporate management organizations and they have a relationship with the state, have an open relationship with the state where they can actually sit at the same table and advocate for the industry. That does not exist in Trinidad. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure it exists properly in the rest of the region. Right. So as a consequence, whereas manufacturers could sit down with the government and ask for certain things, one or two persons in the music industry will have to be doing that because there's no collective. And certainly there's no collective in Trinidad that can speak with a unified voice for advocacy and for trade for trade negotiations and that kind of stuff. And I think that is one of the things that is holding back the music industry super growth. We recognize that there are stars out there. We recognize that there are, there are always these individual artists who, if you're from Barbados, Rihanna is like a goddess, right? But Rihanna's role is to making money. Rihanna has not done anything for the Barbadian in the music industry. The Barbados government, recognizing what the model that Two producers came to America, to Barbados, they saw her, they plucked out of Barbados, took her to America, trained her, and released her to the world. The Barbados tried to replicate that model by the investment company, working with local musicians, local artists, picking a couple artists, Al Linton, I remember, was one, and getting them signed, Chantel, they were signed to Motong, among other labels. Mm -hmm. But they only had like a one-album deal or two-album deal, in the sense that after the first album, they basically were dropped, Right. It becomes difficult because it's not that we are not proud of our musicians or that if they get signed or some kind of thing like that, right? But the government's investment in culture, there's a threshold amount that has to be spent. People look at the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom has a culture that everybody knows. Once you speak the English language, you're speaking the UK culture. And of course, their whole culture of plays, Shakespeare, Chaucer. Dickens and that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. as well as other areas in terms of Broadway musical or broad Western musicals and and music, rock and roll, biggest two biggest rock and roll bands ever, as far as the, as far as the data says, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, two English bands, right, Led Zeppelin, but at the same time recognizing that when you look at the budgets from a percentage point of view, the UK only spends about one percent, if not less, 
on the music industry. Trinidad and Tobago spends the same thing, 1%, on the cultural industry, the cultural and creative industries. But that works out a very little bit of money. In the real world, you have to spend possibly tens, if not hundreds of millions of US dollars to do the kind of enabling environment necessary to move a music industry forward. That kind of investment is way out of reach for a number of governments. And as much as we would love to get these things, we also recognize they can't be done. Trinidad and Tobago should have been spending ideally four to five million dollars per year, Trinidad dollars, in terms of infrastructure development for five years to develop our music industry to get to a point where we could actually have conversations easily with labels. One, we could actually generate a fair number of artists dropping million views and, you know, developing these artists who are kind of will be taken substantially. The Trinidad government has not been able to spend more than a million TT dollars in terms of its infrastructure development for for the for our local music industry. Bottom line is we just don't have the money. And I think as much as governments want to do it, money is still a problem. And they prioritize their money where they know they can get returns. For a number of countries, that is in tourism. In Trinidad and Tobago, that's in the energy industry. And as much as just yesterday in Trinidad, we had a, a brand new cabinet was sworn in, and we've now linked our culture division, our culture ministry with the tourism industry. And this, this, there's a synergy that the obviously the government is seeing between tourism and music. I'm sorry, culture. But tourism and culture automatically leads to the idea that carnival is the only thing that drives the cultural industries in Trinidad and Tobago. Right. But that leaves out a whole other segment of subsidiary industries, you know, film and, and, and certain music, among others, that can benefit from some kind of structural funding. Because in the past, as I said, the trade ministry handled the music industry. They only had a million dollars for investment in, in infrastructure development and development finance funding. Culture, depart, culture, the, um, culture ministry, which is a separate ministry from the trade ministry, they get three, four times that amount. So that it, it, an, an ideal situation is a kind of refocusing of how they view the, the industries in the Caribbean. Bottom line, money is a problem. And as a consequence, yes, the government know what they have to do, but can they do it? Not necessarily can they all do it. Mm, great explanation. Yeah, what, what I was saying, um, in terms of the future of soca, I think you had asked me that. I just wanted to stick this in. The new generation of soca artists had, is not seeing competition as being that important anymore. We're talking about how that could move forward. Certainly, um, for many, many years, Soka Monarch, which is the biggest thing that happened to soca music, as far as I'm concerned, in the last 20-something years, more than 15 years, they were driving the industry. They had the biggest show, stadium-sized show, producing biggest stars. William Monroe, who was a producer, was able to get some buses in the black music industry, black entertainment industry to come to Trinidad to be like color commentators, was able to farm it out to outlets in North America that were, had, were looking for black music as it was. Now in 2020, Soka Monarch is a shell of what it used to be. Mm-hmm. They think it had less than 5,000 people at the, at the concert this year. The song, songs that won, yeah, they're nice songs, they're not hits. And as I said, the, the people who are making hits no longer want to even enter Soka Monarch. And I think they're seeing the idea of a competition as no longer being a thing to be part of. Now, that was very insightful. Back to uh, a little bit of you now. Uh, tell us about your experience writing for Caribbean Airlines Magazine and also the Trinidad Guardian newspaper. Guardian newspaper. Um, 
Well, Caribbean Beat, I've been with them a little longer. The Guardian was for a couple of years, and then they had, there was a restructuring at the newspaper where literally the whole features department was shuttled out. And all the freelance writers were basically let go and things. But um, I, I, I wrote, I had a blog, obviously, and people who had read my stuff, the editor-in-chief of the paper, Judy Raymond, props her. She, she had read my stuff and said, well, I wouldn't mind having him writing for the paper. And I had gone out and was covering stories, meeting artists, as well as I had my opinion pieces. That was what my blog was about, more opinion pieces. With Caribbean Beat, I, I remember with The Guardian, I had written a review. And when I had seen a review in the Caribbean Beat, it kind of looked similar. It wasn't plagiarism, but it had looked similar. And I kind of put out a, a kind of challenge to the editor. I said, listen, if you want something original, I'm available. Right? And uh, about, a, about a couple of months later, he said, you know, you said he wanted to write something. We have some write a review first of some albums. And pff, that's going to be in about four years now. And I think I'm still there. Right? So, so that it's it's fun. Admittedly, it's a lot of fun. And admittedly, what has happened coming out of that was that I was able to get some commissions. I want to say that because St. Lucia had, uh, based on my writing at Caribbean Beat, which is music reviews and a couple cover stories, I did one on Etienne Charles. And I did a major story on, on Desha Garcia and I did a smaller story on, on Nyla Blackmon. Mm-hmm. One of the things that had happened was that I, I, I founded my own magazine. I decided I wanted to publish my own magazine. As I told you before, I do a, pro, a promoter event called Jazz Artists and the Greens, and I said I'm going to couple this magazine, which is about jazz in the islands, that's the name of the magazine, and put it out and give it out as a, as a giveaway to my patrons at the event. So it's only about 25, 25 to 40 pages, 24 to 40 pages. It's not a very thick magazine. And it's specifically about Caribbean, Caribbean-based music and Caribbean-based jazz music. And somebody in the St. Lucia Tourism Department who puts on St. Lucia Jazz got a hold of one, saw it, one, they wanted to advertise in it, and secondly, they said, you know, I like your writing. You know, we want to bring it to St. Lucia, and but you have to write about St. Lucia Jazz, and you have to make sure it gets out into the public. And, and I ain't gonna lie to you. All I, all I thought to myself is, many, many years ago, I went to university and I studied science. Writing was not my thing. When I was in high school, anger writer. Yeah, I passed English and that kind of stuff. But writing was never my thing. So to, to come back all in this part of my life to discover that Caribbean Beat and the Guardian newspapers have allowed me to now become a writer. And, and not necessarily, I'm not a major published writer. I'm not even a current writer with the Guardian. I'm no longer attached to the Guardian. But um, being able to write and people reacting to it and saying, okay, we want to work with you. It's something that I ain't gonna like, I never expected in my life. And I'm kind of happy about it, and thing. And that has been kind of what it is. I've been happy. Uh, Caribbean Airlines has been an in-flight airline magazine. Of course, the planes are not flying because of COVID. So we, recently, I think in the beginning of July, they put out their first digital edition, digital only edition. And the print magazine may, may come back by November. But um, it's it's one of those things that you know it's it's one of those things that I do cherish. I have the ability to write, and of course, engage with some writers. I've been able to have some conversations with some writers based in the states, jazz musicians, jazz writers, soca writers, reggae writers, and that kind of stuff. So it's been nice. It's been fun. So Nigel, what advice do you would you have for um, aspiring writers, particularly from the Caribbean, because outlets are disappearing. You know, uh, what advice do you have for any any young aspiring writers? Well, you're correct. The, the outlets are uh, gone. 
um, magazines. They only have a couple of magazines that are available, and I think they still operate on doing lifestyle stories, you know, tourism and lifestyle, probably food and living and that kind of stuff. Um, newspapers are cutting down in terms of their writing. There are a couple of digital platforms. Of course, Loop Caribbean is one of the big ones that's owned by digital. Um, young writers, I would suggest those who are really, really, really good at those, possibly the ones who have studied, right? They're probably writers who probably already finished university and looking to write. Start a blog. Start a blog. Get on Medium or some kind of thing like that. But start a blog, and because blogging may be your life. It's, it, this Writing is a difficult industry. Writing is not the only thing that I do. I have other things, I have land and that kind of stuff. But um, what happens is, if you're passionate about writing, write. I think also, post-COVID, writing now becomes a thing that is narrated. So that if you, if you write, it's almost like you're writing a script. So that your writing must reflect how a, a person speaks almost, kind of thing, right? I would suggest... Also, keep it tight. You and I have been talking for quite some time. I don't know if this, if this was a, a, a transcript, a written project. This would be like a size of a book, right? But you know, have to be able to be succinct in your writing. Um, in terms of the business of writing, contact is like in all industries, creative. It's who you know and who knows you kind of stuff. Make sure your blog is out there. Make sure your quality of your writing is excellent. And make sure you network people so that you can get to know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody that you actually may, able to, may be able to get to a place where you'll be able to, to write for somebody. There's some some success stories. We all know that Beyonce's publicist is a Grenadian lady who's living in the States, admittedly. Yeah. But publications and writing and other stuff. So that, and there are, there are persons who write. I mean, we write. Caribbean has produced two Nobel Prize winners. But in terms of in terms of literature, but certainly in terms of a career in writing now for a young person, start your blog, make sure that your blog is readable, make sure it's tight and succinct, make sure that your writing is of a very high quality. That means you have to get it vetted by persons and make sure you get a lot of feedback so people tell you honestly whether they were interested, impressed, or they liked your story. Mm-hmm. Those are the things that have to happen. Just for, the benefit, just, just for the benefit of the audience, uh, who yeah. were the, those two Nobel Prize winners? Oh, well, from St. Lucia, Derek Walcott, he won the Nobel Prize, and I believe it was 1992. Yeah. And V.S. Naipaul, born in Trinidad, only kind of give us up. He said he was an Englishman, but he never let go Trinidad. There's no denying that he's from Trinidad, and he's he's owned himself as a Trinidad. He's, he said he's a Trinidad. We're not to fool ourselves about that. He won his Nobel Prize in 2001. And, uh, anyone, anyone too, that uh, I, did CXC in the nineties would know House for Mister Biswas. <laughs> House for Mister Biswas is, is um, Naipaul's most famous book. It's probably the most famous book by a Trinidadian about Trinidad, either a by a Trinidad or about Trinidad. It's probably the most popular piece of fiction out there ever. Walcott, of course, is a poet laureate of the world. He's the best poet that ever came out of this part of the world. Really, really good stuff, and he wrote some brilliant prose as well. Something to think about. Mm-hmm. And he started very young. He published his own book, I think at 17 or 16 or something like that. So if you have to do it yourself, you possibly have to do it yourself. I mean, it's a, it's a tradition that happened for quite some time in the cabinet. Writers publish themselves, but you have to write good. That's it. When did you fall in love with this thing called... I know, so we spoke about your exposure to the fusion in the in the calypso yes. and, and and jazz, but specifically, yes. there are not many people in the Caribbean that are 
as enthusiastic about jazz and pan jazz and and uh, <laughs> and jazz from the islands as you are. When did this love affair begin? Well, as I said, admittedly, that music turned me on. The other person who actually did it for me was Ralph MacDonald, late Ralph MacDonald. Father was a Calypsoian called Macbeth the Great, Trinidadian parents. But he, he was born in Harlem. He's born in the States, right? And he was a producer and a songwriter. Of course, it's one of his most famous songs is Just the Two of Us by Grover Washington Jr. Okay. He used to work for Bella Fonte back in the sixties and by the I wanna say the seventies, could have been late seventies. Yeah, definitely seventies because I think he was on the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. He released an album. And one of the songs on the album was called Calypso Breakdown. So of course if you're from Trinidad and they hear a song named Calypso Breakdown and say, Well, what's this? Right? And as I said, there's certain things in our DNA we understand right away. The drum is one. If you're a Trinidadian, you understand what a bottle and spoon is. There's a kind of rhythm. Yeah. <laughs> and we heard this thing and we said, what is this person? Who is this Ralph McDonald guy? Well, persons who knew, knew. I didn't know. And Ralph McDonald positioned me and I said, he was writing kind of soul jazz as it was. That was the thing at the time. And that is when I said, I like this thing called jazz. And it doesn't necessarily have to be Miles Davis or Coleman Hawkins or, or Charlie Parker. But I want the jazz that speaks to my DNA. The jazz that speaks to my DNA could make me dance. And it could also make me bump my head with a certain kind of rhythm. And I went searching for that. And I've been doing it. I'm one of those kind of nerds, probably OCD or some kind of, there are probably some name for that now. So that I'll be, I'm one of those nerds who would read the line and notes of an album. No, I, I, yeah, 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 mm -hmm. <laughs> quite so familiar. For, for, for quite some time, so that you kind of recognize certain names and it's your Ralph McDonald played on everybody's record and then he started to write songs and then he put a steel pan on a pop tune, just the two of us, um, Robert Greenidge playing the pan, the solo on it, and you realize, what is this? So this whole passionate thing about understanding and, and recognizing there was a space and a place where a steel pan could be on the pop charts. Right, where a song that song Calypso wish could be on the pop charts, right? On the on the R and B charts, the dance charts, whatever it is. And then he said, "But that, that that is what I've always thought, selfishly or probably otherwise or foolishly, that more than soca, the thing that would get onto the American music charts would be this kind of fusion." Little side, little side note here: as we all know, Kevin Little from Saint Vincent went to number four in the American pop charts with a soca song. Yeah, go figure. Yes, yes, yes. Matter of fact, there was a, you know, I used to tease a lot of my friends from Trinidad in college, especially. I'd say, you know, there's only been a couple of, uh, there've only been a couple international soca songs, truly international, and none are from Trinidad. Listen, I, that is not a tease. What you are saying there has been recognized by every single Trinidadian, including this one that you're speaking to right now. Because it is a question that I've been asking Americans and American journalists and American producers. Why can you not recognize a soca song? I give examples. Anything by Marshall, come dig it from back in the day on, on Delicious Vinyl. It's Carnival by Destra Garcia. Anything, but anything. Well, it's a good song, but I don't get it. I don't understand it. But what they got, I said, well, how did you get Turn Me On by Kevin Little? What was that? Well, I guess somebody knew somebody. And that was, that was what somebody told me. Somebody knew somebody. I said, who let the dogs out? Originally, the man done by the Trinidadian. and some Douglas. Yeah, and some Douglas. I mean, I care about that. A cover by Bahamen. Boom. Hit. 
Come on! Even what, even even accident do? by traffic ended up accident, in in yes, the uh, wild yes. thornberries by was that at Disney? Diego? Accident, yes. Yeah. I remember that. And I, I remember think I remember I had a, a conversation very recently with a journalist, and I asked a question. I said, let me ask a question. Is there like a, a kind of secret memo out there in the American music industry that says, well, you know, if you're from Trinidad, nah, we put it to the side because I, I cannot for the life of me understand how no Trinidadian has ever had. I hit. Bungie Garland had a remix of of um, different anthology right. with Major Lazer, and that was one of right? the biggest ones. And it was bubbling. It was. It was. It was. It was on the dance charts and that kind of stuff. I think it was on me have been on the R&B charts or some kind of thing. So, but it, it never got top forty. Kevin Little went to number four. Mm-hmm. In Trinidad, we knew the song. The song was game to Trinidad. He performed the song. We liked the song. It wasn't. It was a hit. It wasn't a hit, but it was a popular song in Fets and that kind of stuff. But and, when I seen this thing rising up the charts and this was like two years after it was in Trinidad it was going up the charts in America I said the exact same thing that you were teasing your friends with I said what the heck is going on Arrow from from uh, Montserrat, Montserrat. Hot, hot, hot. Uh, as I said well Buster Point Dexter had done over his song but I said Kevin Little from St. Vincent there's a song that we said yeah it's a nice song but it was a hit yeah and but Arrow, Arrow's, Arrow's Hot 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 was, was huge without Point Dexter actually Yes, it was huge and huge all over the world. All over the world. Yeah, it does only have to be America. He recognized and he saw that. But there was another song. There was a year, I can't remember what year it was. Marshall had a song called Jumbies. It was like the biggest song in That was 2000, I believe. 2007, sorry. There you go. You know better than me. And that same year, a guy called Fireball, a guy called Fireball had a song called... Ooh, not to me on. It was come to me on. I can't, I can't remember the specific name of the song, but Fireball had a song where he kind of affected a kind of operatic voice, <laughs> kind of thing, right? Mm. So some people call it a novelty song, and it was kind of, almost like a joke in China. But it was, it was not. It was not a big hit, but we all remember the song because it was this unique week, this unique way that he sang this song, almost operatic like. And a French man called Bob Sinclair, a, a DJ. Said, DJ, yeah, yeah of course. We uh in, 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 in the sub region we know him uh, he goes to Saint Bart's a lot so there you go <laughs> there you go and he heard that he said that's his song I went and that well Bob Sinclair was signed to Universal France and it was like it and I'm thinking to myself I said okay so you didn't like Marshall who had the biggest song in Trinidad be like Fireball which comes back again to a point that I had made earlier what we in Trinidad like the rest of the world may not like and we have to acknowledge and accept and see that and find a way to navigate that you become, that you start to listen to us the way that we listen to ourselves. That's a very, very difficult task, and not everybody does it. New Zealanders can't do it. Lord is from New Zealand. Crowded House is from New Zealand. I've always asked myself, how did they have hits on the American charts? But in New Zealand, they're popular, but it's one hit, one hit. The English have it down, but that relationship between England and America clearly is unique. Right. Sweden has had individual artists who are popular, but a Swedish songwriter was just writing pop songs, pop songs. He's the biggest pop songwriter in planet Earth. Yep. Max Martin. Max Martin. Right? <laughs> yeah. Right? So, but he's not writing Swedish music. He's just writing pop songs, right? So, of course, you know, from Britney all the way up to Katy Perry and, and beyond and that kind of stuff. But the big issue is what we hear and how we hear ourselves is not what the rest of the world hears or possibly wants to hear. Unfortunately, but we see what happens. So when a fella says this one is international, 
you kind of you can't judge what will will take off. Well, if a Trinidad says this song has got to be a hit and it can make it all over the world, I wouldn't I wouldn't bet bet my house on that. <laughs> right? If it happens, well, it happens, but it may not happen. By the way, I and, think. And, I, and mm -hmm. go, go ahead. ahead. You go ahead. I was saying, I think the last song that we didn't mention is uh, Tempted to Touch by Rupi. Yeah, but it was, uh, as I, it was attached to a film, but the film was uh, a moderate hit and that kind of stuff, and it, it, it got out there. I mean, the, the, the music industry, aside from streaming and that kind of stuff, of course, is synchronizing with film and television. So that um, licensing and, and licensing your music and synchronizing it in terms of a publishing deal is where a lot of money is also made. Yes. If you, if you read music business world, you recognize that they always talk about billion dollar acquisitions, a hundred million dollar acquisitions of publishing labels and publishing catalogs and that kind of stuff. And that is like a big business. And I'm, I read this thing when I ask myself, well, so I, I, you, you're moving part ownership of this back and forth, back and forth, and spending hundreds of millions of dollars to acquire an asset. How is that making money for you? But then you realize that every television show, every movie now has music as part of their a past part of the film every commercial exactly and it's not necessarily original music it could be licensed music so that is where the money is now coming from so that I mean right, just as another side I find we're doing a lot of sides Bungie Garland a couple of years ago got his song um, the original version of Differentology in the American television program Grey's Anatomy, Grey's Anatomy. The first 90 seconds was him singing over the acting that's happening below the, below the, um, the music it's a good deal, right? I think it happened in the past to Marshall uh, Montana and possibly Shaggy in the, in the past on one of those other shows, Hawaii Five or something like that. But um, that is that those ideas of how our modern music industry is run, it's still there. You make money from live performances. Let's not fool ourselves about that. But you have to be, you have to have understand multiple streams of revenue, and that's the kind of future of music right now. Mm -hmm. So Rupee getting a song in the film, good, good move. Getting it to move up the charts even better. Indeed. Nigel, describe to us a little bit, because many people have not gone to jazz events in the Caribbean. Many people don't even know that there are jazz events in the Caribbean. Des mm. Describe the atmosphere and the, and the mood and everything of those events. And the, the, Well, the jazz events in Trinidad, we have, a, we have a, a number of outdoor jazz events. They're basically like picnics. So people come with baskets, they dress up nicely for, you know, kind of resort where, and it's on a field, on a playing field, a cricket field in our situation. People come dressed, they walk with the wine, they walk with the food. Some people have tables. We have tables on a couple of, a couple of our events where people lay out a table as if it's a big spread. And it's live music, obviously. So the music becomes part and parcel of the experience. Some people come dedicated and sit down in chairs to watch performances. Others come and have conversations. It's as I said, because our show is after carnival, four weeks after carnival, it becomes an alternative to a carnival. And there's an older crowd, so an older demographic. Other jazz festivals in the Caribbean, of course, the big one is St. Lucia Jazz. And they really focus now on jazz because they now have a relationship with jazz at Lincoln Center from New York for the last couple of years. So they've been having jazz artists, great reporter, um, and a number of Caribbean born artists who had been performing there have been performing in St. Lucia and Chick Corea was supposed to be at the show this year in 2020 that is they've, they've actually made purpose built tents that are like small buildings to hold these events with a stage and audience and, and it's, it's a purpose built thing 
But certainly in the other islands, in Barbados, a friend of mine, Elan Trotman, he has one. He's basically focused on smooth jazz. And he has his own on the beach. Well, he had it on the beach one year and then rain fell, so we had to bring it indoors at the border of the Hilton in, in Bridgetown. But the event is where everybody recognizes jazz is a kind of adult event. It's uh, almost like a, a lifestyle, kind of luxurious lifestyle kind of option where the music could either be a background for liming. I hope your, your, your listeners know what liming is. Or it could be the music actually where people listen to the music. And it's not hard music. As I say, it's not seriously hard music. But we, we understand we're in the Caribbean and we feel that way. But in Trinidad, trust me, it's an outdoor picnic. People just relax and have fun. Drink, look, live good, and they live good for an afternoon. Sounds like fun to me. <laughs> the older you get, the, the more you want a, a slow, relaxed vibe, you know? <laughs> exactly. As I said, it's an older demographic. No two ways about it. Younger people, they into soccer fets. Once you cross 40, all of a sudden, hey, this jazz thing looking like fun. That's what happens. <laughs> Unless you're dating somebody much younger. <laughs> well, I've, I've seen those two at our events. So say what? <laughs> <laughs> Does, did I just tell us about your uh, your podcast? Yes, um, well, as I said, myself and Laura Dorich, Philip, she's the regional lifestyle editor at Club Caribbean. We do this podcast, Music Matters, the Caribbean edition. It's available on all the platforms. And we speak about the business of music in the Caribbean, right? Because that has been our passion. Laura and I we used to have these long telephone conversations, and she just said, why did, we, why did you talk? Why don't you do a podcast? And I said, you know, why the hell not? You know, I got some equipment, went on Amazon, bought some microphones, a mixer. Of course, the software is online. I knew how to build a website and you ought to put stuff online. Boom. And next thing you know, we had a podcast and we'd be going, we'd be, we'd be supposed to be doing this more frequently. Unfortunately, we would be doing it like once a month. And um, this is our third year. Um, COVID is kind of killing us this time around. By now, we should have had at least eight podcasts for the year. We've only had about four. But we've discovered, of course, a new way to get out there and talk to the people. I am very impressed, Crispin, with what you have done. I've listened to your podcast. I've seen your format excellent production that you put on here very interesting conversations with a lot of people who are important and interested in the Caribbean music Caribbean industry as it was whether it's entertainment music or whatever who listeners may not know who they are and I'm proud of you on that Thank and you. we recognize also that um, we have quote unquote competition so if you have to keep our stuff you have to get back into the game and, and step it up and then but as I said it's about the business of music in the Caribbean we do interviews but we actually talk about the business aspect of it in terms of oh no this is no competition trust me I love your podcast yeah, thank you very much for that you're um yeah you and Laura do a wonderful job and you know some of the guests that you have are people that I've <laughs> wondered about or wanted to hear from Yes. And you know it's it just oh, it's just wonderful to to tune in and, and hear them speak and hear them tell mm -hmm. their stories as well. You know, yeah. As I said, one of the things that we're looking at going forward is that um, are we hoping I should say because of this new way of how we have to do interviews all remote, everybody in their own space, and you tell us with Zoom or WhatsApp or whatever, is that. Um, we'll be able to actually to talk to some people who may have been reluctant to talk before. Of course, if you're living outside of Trinidad, we have to do a telephone conversation. We, in the past, were actually were able to do interviews with people when we were abroad. Laura travels more frequently than I do. But when I go abroad, I was able to get some interviews and insert those interviews into the podcast. But people are recognizing now that there are scant opportunities for performance and scant opportunities, even for generating the music industry in Caribbean, are willing to talk. 
and they're willing to talk on a number of platforms regardless of the numbers that you're generating in terms of listens and downloads and that kind of stuff. So we've discovered this. PR Even never hurts. In the past, actually said, yeah, yeah, I'll do your podcast. So <laughs> <laughs> be confident. People, people are, are willing to talk nowadays. No, PR never hurts. And, um, you know, exactly. in order to stay relevant, why not jump on a Nigel and Laura's podcast, you know? There you go. So. There you go. We got to have some fair amount of write-ups. So I think we we're, we're looking at building our brand as it was. As it, it's only a couple of years now, and we we are as Laura and myself are older than forty, so that we are kind of almost like senior players. But at the same time, we understand the music industry. We're willing to talk to anybody, and so younger younger performers do speak to us. But we're looking, of course, to talk to some international players who have an understanding of the Caribbean and the Caribbean music industry. And we're getting there slowly but surely. We're trying to build up that portfolio of interviews. So that we can make some leeway. Wonderful, wonderful. Who or what inspires you? Oh, that's the question. Who what inspires me? Yes. <laughs> um, wow, job is kind of hard, philosophical question. I mean. <laughs> who inspires me? Um, who inspires me is what I call successful people. And successful people don't necessarily have to be those who, as I say, bother us putting them out. It could be somebody who started something seemingly original and did it, who got the job done. And they could be from the Caribbean and they could be from, from anywhere in the world, right? Um, to say that I have a success, I mean, there's some obvious persons who, who inspire me because they were able to do things that seemed impossible. And of course, this may sound kind of cliche, but one of those persons is Steve Jobs, right? Mm. Steve Jobs is all the historian thing, but the idea of not so much starting a company when he first started with the Wozniak, but what he took it back over, what he developed, I, the iMac, the iPod, iTunes, the iPad. I think he was planning to go for the i something or the i, I the iSpace. Now, what do you call that space now? What the, the online, the online space. I forget the name of, of the top of my head right now. Mm. But he was had some other plans, and of course that that vision of transforming effectively a number of industries, culture. That yeah, that to me was very inspirational. I do have the access that he had. I certainly had, had a buff of money coming in to the second time around at Apple. He already had started Apple and had money. But that has always been impressive. In terms of other people, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not inspired by politicians. I'm inspired and impressed by smart people and people who are original thinkers and, I'm inspired, and original writers. This, one of them is a very controversial person. And I already call his name today. One of them is V.S. Naipaul. Very controversial. He said a lot of bad things about black people and about Caribbean people. But he also has a method of writing truth and honesty as well as our opinion. And the way that he writes and he puts his things together and some of the things that he spoke about, the Trinidad Society that he wrote in 1960 that is still pertaining in 2020, that is a kind of understanding of a society that very few people are able to do. I'm also a fan of Derek Walker's writing. So those kind of philosophers, Gordon Rowley is a, a Guyanese who's now living in Trinidad, he's a literature professor, and he writes about Calypso and about culture and all kind of things. Those are the kind of people who inspire me. Great writers, great thinkers, see the big picture as it was. Everybody as an analyst could see fine details. But when you can step back and see the larger picture over a long period of time, that always inspires me. And that is my goal, to be able to see things from a very large scope if that's the right phrase if that's the right analogy and put it into proper writing simply as Naipaul has done 
Here's a good one for you. What advice would you give the 16-year-old Nigel? 16-year-old Nigel? Yes. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Well, all right, we're going to leave out the personal stuff, right? But in terms of our lifestyle choice, I think what I did from 16 going into 25, let's say, I think that was all well and good. The thing I would have done was I would have told myself, start the job and never give it up, but start tasks because there were periods in my life where tasks were started and they were never completed and then many many years later you see somebody has done a similar thing to what you thought about and it's successful and you ask yourself well i had that idea before what so thing, that people always do. A thing that people always do they always have a great idea write it on a piece of paper and write it down and then somebody comes and then does it and you say well why didn't do that I lived in Trinidad, as I said, I mentioned before, I lived for three years in the States, late 90s, early 2000s, and I went to university in Canada in the early 80s. But every, ever since then, I've basically been living in the Caribbean. And living in the Caribbean, you kind of recognize the kind of limitations that do exist. Um, the 16 year old Nigel would have still been in Trinidad. I would have said, whatever you do, recognize that limitations exist, but the world is huge, and you could be part of the world if you just do it and do it properly. I may have had to migrate and come back and migrate and come back. I may not have migrated permanently. I don't know if I was able to, to do that. I really and truly don't know if I, I do like cold weather and I'm not sure if I want city would have liked to live. Forget the sixties. What is going on now in America where you can't drive down the road? Uh, I think I, I'm, I'm happy in the Caribbean. But 16 year old Nigel, start your stuff and do it all the way through. Don't procrastinate and don't put things off and hope that nothing will happen. Great advice. Great advice. What is, in your opinion, the best advice that you've ever received? Mm. Could be life, could be business. Well, um, it's possibly life. Um, what did it, well, it's a piece of advice. Uh, there's some things that my mother said. My father died when I was a very young child. So I never got any advice from her. So my mother was the person. She, you know, you, you look back and you realize, you know, those things made sense. But there's something that I, there's, there's something that I've always heard and understood. Always keep your mouth shut and always learn. Learn, learn. Everything that you do in life and every encounter and engagement you meet with a person or any aspect, you'll, you'll learn something from it. Good, bad, or indifferent. You meet somebody, a girl, whatever it is, and it's been a bad, learn from that. Right? But one of the things that you must also learn how to do is learn how not to talk all the time. I mean, this podcast aside, you probably be talking for one hour. The irony, the irony. Yeah, the one that you might be for one hour. But the idea of sitting down and listening. Listen and learn. And also, to take that further, make sure that when you learn, you also see the big picture. Always see the big picture. The big picture may not be something that has happened in the last month, but there are patterns in life, and if you look back long enough, you may see a pattern, and that pattern may lead to a conclusion. Listen and learn, and not talk so much, Nigel, Mm -hmm. ironically, he said. (laughs) What's next for Nigel Campbell? What what new project uh, do you have coming up or that we can look forward to? What's next? Well, as I said, COVID has turned the whole 
all industries around. And certainly, because as I said, I'm a, a life concert promoter, that's dead in 2020 and possibly early 2021. So I'm looking at the idea of how podcasting, broadcasting, streamcasting could become the new normal and how I can be part and parcel of that. Um, I've been engaging with some, some persons here in terms of who are in the film industry, actually, because they're also not be able to, to make any movies and how we can utilize this and how we can transform performance into something that is broadcast. It doesn't have to be, bro- it doesn't have to be performed live to an audience of thousands, but a performance is a performance that can then be broadcast. So I'm looking at definitely pivoting from the live music industry into a kind of live slash streamed music industry. That's one. Um, I'm supposedly it's at the age where people are starting to retire. Many years ago, that would have been a retirement age. Now, I'm feeling young like hell, and I still have a lot of things that I really want to do. I want to write a book. Mm-hmm. I want to write a book about the music industry, the popular music industry in China and Tobago from the 1970s to present. And I want to do some more writing, and I want to see the world. I haven't traveled enough. I mean, I've traveled a lot in the, in the Americas. I haven't done Europe. I certainly haven't done Asia. And I think I'm actually traveling and learn. That's mm-hmm. what I want to do. So with me, film and video in music and do some writing, some very, very long-form writing in terms of putting that knowledge of what industries out there into the public domain. Don't forget Africa. You got to get to the... <laughs> At least... Well, yes, obviously, yes. I, I would not say no to that. I mean, there was... Getting to Africa is, you know, that kind of circuitous route. Once you get there, yes, I have to go there. I have to kiss the ground. At least the West food. Coast, yes, of course. Yeah, yeah, I have to, I have to go there. I have to, I have to do that. That's not, I'm not going to say no to that. When you're 95 years old on your rocking chair up on a veranda, what is the, the, the thing that you will say, I am happy that I accomplished that? So what is your ultimate goal? When I'm 95, what, what, what the future self will look back and be proud of? Why? I don't know. Well, then you know, not mention the personal things. I have a daughter. So <laughs> I have one child, and I'm not sure I'm going to be carrying more children after this. So I hope the best for her, and I hope that she she's she's in the right place, and she's doing the right thing. So I'm looking for great things for her. That happened. And so that's one. But um, in terms of what I've done, I've, I've done some seriously critical assessment of what I've done. I mean... I mean, hypercritical. If I had to be from the perspective, if I was an American this month, and I looked at what I've done over the period, this period of time, or even some some psychologists looking at my personal relationships with others, I could find faults in everything that I've done, right? And I could fool myself and said, well, although I did not do this, I did this, right? And and harp on those. I, w- I want to do some long term assessments, as I said, big picture assessment. You said ninety five, so that's more than thirty years from now. I um I hope I still have things to do. Some of the things that I may do that may be long, long lasting, I may not have done it as yet. Because that could be one of the things that I'm looking forward to. The thing that may cement my legacy hasn't happened as yet. Mm-hmm. Now, Nigel, this is a segment of the interview that I call The Planet Is Yours. I strap on my spacesuit, jump out into the atmosphere and allow you to Mm -hmm. stay on the planet and tell the audience whatever it is you want to tell them. Oh, anything? Anything. (laughs) Your audience. All right, well, as I said, the the kind of lessons that I've learned, we've been talking for quite some time. I hope you'll be able to gain something from our conversation. 
um, we've been focused on the music industry, but at the same time, I think there are larger lessons that a person who's not in his 20s anymore has seen a lot of ups and downs and changes and evolution in the industry. And certainly 2020 has allowed us to see what COVID and disruption can be for any for any industry. Um, I just hope that persons listen to what we've said. It's a lot to listen to. And take up this one piece of advice. Always see the big picture in anything that you do. I keep repeating it over and over again because it's really something that I, I'm, I believe in. Anything that you do, one, do it well. But anything that you receive, make sure you see what it is in terms of a larger context. Your life in a larger context, your career in a larger context, your relationships in a larger context, your failures in a larger context. Always see the big picture. And oh. don't be afraid to do things. Awesome, awesome advice. Here's a very important question. How do we contact you? How do we get to your podcast, your blog? Can they email right, you? Well, you know, amazingly, I'm surprised I never even mentioned it before. My, my jazz website, Jazz in the Islands, is jazz.tt. And my podcast is, is, is podcast.iradio.tt. iradio.tt was if the whole, um, that my, my digital self as it was. And I had, uh, I was planning to do an actual streaming radio station. That was the original idea of iRadio TT. Technology ran away from me and licensing fees also ran away from me. So I have the, 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 the domain name, of course. I have a couple of playlists up on iRadio TT. I've also done live concert on my own, which is iRadioTT.live. But um, in terms of what I'm doing now, the podcast, it's podcast.iradio.tt. Music Matters Caribbean, it's available on, you can find me on social media in terms of Facebook, on Instagram. And the podcast is available on all platforms. Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, name it, it's there. Awesome. Did you want to say something brief uh, about your... Sorry, hold on. Five, four, three, two, one. Did you want to say something about your blog, your jazz blog? Oh, um, well, I, I have the, the main blog. I also have a blog, which is blog.iradio.tt. That's where I do a lot of my writing, my long-form writing on the music industry in the Caribbean and other stuff. Um, as I said, jazz.tt is, is a kind of platform where I have my writing on jazz. My magazine is also there. And I've been doing a conversion. I've spoke to you about the idea of converting my writing into narration and speak dot jazz.tt is this new platform I'm now investigating where I'm going to narrate or have the duration of, of all my long-form writing pieces. So jazz.tt is a platform. That's where you're going to find my magazine and my blog and other writing and podcast. I also have a podcast that um, operates out of the Island Jazz Chat. Jazz.tt. That's my life now. Mm -hmm. Nigel Campbell, we spoke about a lot. We discussed a lot, and I think that it's an earful for anybody in the Caribbean music industry. Hope to have more of these conversations in the future. But for now, I cannot thank you enough for joining me here on Planet 30. I thank you, Crispin. It's been a wonderful conversation. I mean, it's literally night time in Trinidad right now. We started when it was daylight. And um, as I said, more power to you. And I know you for quite some time, and I think your space in the Caribbean entertainment industry is secure with this blog, with this podcast, sorry, and everything that you do. And hopefully all the best for you in the future. Thank you so much. Same to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Planet 30.
Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at OnPlanet30. Like us on Facebook.com slash Planet30. Our email address is OnPlanet30 at gmail.com. That's O-N-P-L-A-N-E-T-T-H-I-R-T-Y at gmail.com. For more information about Planet 30, visit our website, planet30.com. That's P-L-A-N-E-T-T-H-I-R-T-Y dot com. I am Crispin Brooks, and this is Planet 30.